you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. of truth for Jack Ruby. The accused slayer of President Kennedy's assassin is brought to the Dallas courtroom to hear the verdict of the jury. After two hours and 19 minutes of deliberation, the eight men and four women have reached a decision, a decision based on testimony they heard during the month-long trial presided over by Judge Joe B. Brown. It was a trial marked by flamboyant theatrics on the part of the chief defense attorney, Melvin Belli, who tried unsuccessfully to have the case moved from Dallas. With the jury once more in the box, there comes the climactic moment of the drama that began in Dallas last November. Judge Brown, after warning against demonstrations, calls on the jury. Ladies and gentlemen, you have reached a verdict. May I have it, Sheriff, please? the jury find the defendant guilty of murder with malice as charged in the indictment and assess his punishment at death. Signed, Max E. Causey Foreman. So say you all, ladies and gentlemen, is that your unanimous verdict? Will all of you whose verdict that is please hold up your right hands? All right, Sheriff, he's your president. Keep your seats, please. There'll be no moving out. Don't let anybody out of the courtroom. That is Attorney Belli's voice castigating the jury. He says, don't you worry, Jack, we'll peel this and take it out of Dallas, which did end up happening a couple years later, but not with Melvin Belli as his attorney. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Lone Gunman Podcast. This is episode 109-er. I'm your host, Rob Clark, and today we're going to be talking about a variety of things. 
Uh, we will get into the trial of Jack Ruby. I promise you that. But before we do, <clears throat> I just wanted to thank everybody out there for the great response to these shows You know, in the past month or two. Uh, last week, I had Charles Cliff on. We talked about the Hollywood, how Hollywood has treated the assassination in cinema. Um, and it was a great show. I had fun doing it. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback about it. And we asked you, you know, if we if we missed anything, let us know. And you did. And thank you to listener Eddie out there who let us know that we forgot about the movie Winter Kills. And I believe I talked about it on the show. I can't even remember when. And I can't believe we forgot all about it. But this is a movie from 1979. Um it was a theatrical release. Uh, it starred Jeff Bridges, uh, John Houston, Anthony Hopkins, you know, from Psycho as, as, as the Oswald character. But, you know, these, these people weren't playing the real President Kennedy, the real Lee Harvey Oswald, things of this nature. They were, it was a fictionalized, I think his name was President Keegan. And, you know, it wasn't Oswald. It was some Italian name. I can't remember exactly. It's been a while since I've seen it. Um, and then it was written by Richard Condon, who also wrote The Manchurian Candidate. So, <clears throat> good book, good movie, and I can't believe we forgot it, Charles, but we did. And that's it. Everybody can check that out if they so choose. It is available on Amazon to rent for $3 if you want to watch it. They have DVDs available as well. I believe it's for as cheap as $11. So... Definitely go back and listen to that show. Uh, you know, we talk a lot of eleven twenty two sixty three, and uh, God, I watched the newest episode, and little details are starting to bug me. Um, but I promise I'll have Charles back on when the series is over, and people have had a chance to watch it. Um, and we'll we'll get in and break it down totally. You know, just a couple things real quick <clears throat> that bug me. Excuse me. They skipped over New Orleans and Mexico City. They just skipped ahead six years or six months. Totally left it out. So I was kind of disappointed in that. Um, you know, they, they didn't have to go through the six months in, you know, however long it was that he was in New Orleans. But it would have been nice, you know, to see, you know, a couple cut scenes, uh, you know, with, with Guy Bannister and him handing out leaflets and him getting arrested, him going on the radio and kind of making a name for himself. Um, that would have been interesting to see, but it didn't happen. And <clears throat> the Oswald character, you know, it, it, it it's not a big deal, <clears throat> but it kind of bothers me that he has a very faint goatee, a very faint mustache and goatee. It's really short, but... You know, this Oswald is not clean shaven and it, and it, just watching him. I mean, he looks so much like Oswald and sounds so much like Oswald that that little bit of facial hair just takes me, takes you right out of it. So I wish they would have just kept him clean shaven. But like I said, these are little, you know, minor things. And, uh, but we'll, like I said, we'll, I'll have Charles back on and we'll, we'll get into it and really, really break it down good. Um, what else? Oh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> I want to also thank another listener for this little gem that I'm about to play you here. Um, and look, 
they're gift horses over there. And the reason I keep bringing them up is because it's so laughable. I just want to share how ridiculous that these guys are over there at, at Jim Fezzer's radio show. And it bugs me, okay, because I go on YouTube and look, and their shows have thousands of views. I've never had an episode of my show get over 900 listens. And I have 109 shows now. Not one of them has ever gotten over, not even, it hadn't even sniffed 900 listens. And it just bugs me because I would put any of my shows up against any of theirs any day of the week. You know, as far as, you know, well, accuracy for one, um, research for another, um, actual research. So here, enjoy this little sound clip. Uh, and you'll understand why I'm playing it. Listen very closely. Okay. Very closely. Here we go. Hi, my name's Gary King, and I've assembled the most formidable JFK team on planet Earth. We've got Dr. James Fetzer, Larry Rivera, who is the number one researcher in the world today when it comes to new research. And we've got Don Fox, who's not afraid to look a little bit deeper than anyone else. So if you're interested in what happened to the 35th president of the United States, then I invite you to our show. It's called The New JFK Show. And it's on YouTube. Go to Gary King YouTube channel. And we've got over 90 shows archived for you there. So if you really want to know the truth, and knowing that over 9 out of 10 researchers are working the other side of the street in a sea of disinformation, I pledge to you the truth about JFK. Go to Gary King YouTube channel and find out your true history. So, <laughs> I hope everybody caught that. Um, well, not not just the horse shit at the beginning about them being the greatest researchers that ever lived. Um, but also, you know, their show that's about the 33rd president, Harry Truman. Uh, but they call it the, the J, JFK show. And their graphics say the JKF show. I, you know, I just, I'm just trying to illustrate how ridiculous these guys are over there. The greatest researcher alive is Larry Rivera. I mean, come on. Come on. What original research has Larry Rivera done? Exactly. He's dredged up old research out of the Weisberg archives. Okay. Uh, he, he's, he's dug up Fred Newcomb's grave and, and, and brought us all this other nonsense again. You know, he's a proponent of the Oswald and the doorway theory, which is total crap. So tell me again how this guy is the greatest researcher alive. I mean, come on, dude. Seriously? And yeah, go back and listen. Rewind. He said the 33rd president, which is Harry Truman. Okay, JFK was the 35th president. You know, if you're going to do a show about JFK, you might want to actually look up and see exactly which president he was. Um, you know, this is just basic stuff that you should know and get right, especially if you're going to do a promo. Um, get your facts straight, please. I mean, you sound ridiculous and amateurish, as, as Jim Fetzer would call it. Um, so, you know, I hope everybody got a laugh out of that. I know I did. That's for damn sure. Because, you know, and, and they tell you if you want, if you want the truth to go over there and listen to their show. 
that 9 out of 10 researchers are working on the other side of disinformation. That's the biggest joke in the world because their show is nothing but disinformation. Nothing but disinformation. You know, it's, it's, it's laughable to me. But then again, it bewilders and befuddles me because their show is listened to by thousands of people. And that's just on YouTube. That's not including what who listens on, you know, the real deal post on his blog spot. And this is why we fight. This is why we fight them. This is why we expose their myths for exactly what they are and try to show you, you know, the JFK community and, you know, the the right way to research and, and, and research is totally wrong is leading you down a, a dead end path or, you know, just the wrong path altogether because, you know, you're going to waste your time wading into the LBJ did it, you know, Oswald in the doorway, uh, 32nd limo stop fantasy land. And you're going to wake up a couple years from now and be like, what, where was I at? Oh, Fetzer had me hypnotized from his monotone, repetitive voice. Oh, but that's why this is where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Right here on the Lone Gummit Podcast, we always keep it real and try to bring you correct information. I'm not going to sit here and preach that, hey, you listen to me and everything I say is the God's honest truth and it's gospel and you can take it to the bank and nobody can argue with me. Because here's the thing. I'm accessible. I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Anybody and their brother can talk to me. I have a website where I have comment section. You know, anybody in the world can say anything they want to me or ask me a question or anything. Their stuff is totally closed off. They don't acknowledge anything. They're not on social media. You know, I don't even know if Gary King has a computer. Okay. But... (laughs) It's ridiculous. It's it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. You know, you can't argue with these people. What they say is gospel. It's written in stone. And if you argue with them, then you're a disinformation asset. Well, that's just ridiculous. So that's why this is why we fight. This is why, you know, we try to expose them for the frauds that they are. I don't even know what they're doing over there. I mean, seriously, you know, it's it's ridiculous. But anyway, enough of that crap. This is the Lone Gunman Podcast, and we're going to be talking about Jack Ruby and, and the trial of Jack Ruby, because there's a lot of interesting aspects to it. I mean, it's pretty cut and dry, okay? Millions of people all over the world saw Jack Ruby murder Lee Oswald or, or shoot him in cold blood in front of the cops, and he was arrested on the spot. You know, so there's not much of a defense. You know, he can't say I didn't do it because, hello, sir, we have you on film right here doing it. Okay, so the only defense becomes whether or not it was a spur-of-the-moment decision without malice or forethought. Because that is where the time gets you. Okay, or you could prove that you were temporarily insane or that you're just insane, period, uh, and and you you're not in control of your own actions, and this is the route that they went. Now Jack Ruby had a myriad of attorneys. His first one was a fellow by the name of Tom Howard, who was actually one of his friends that he knew. He was also 
uh, Henry Wade's friend. Now they were always in on opposite sides in the courtroom, but were often seen together, you know, after court, you know, knocking back a few at the local bar. They were buddies. And when Jack Ruby was arrested, you know, he didn't have a lawyer. Well, here comes, I guess, Alexander called his buddy Tom Howard and uh, he shows up at the jail and, you know, talks to Jack Ruby and, and Jack agrees to let him be his lawyer. And of course, you know, Tom Howard seizes his opportunity. He called it a once in a lifetime opportunity. And he went and boistered in front of the, uh, the newsman and, and stuff and, and said all this crazy stuff. Um, and <clears throat> not too long afterwards, Jack Ruby's brother Earl steps in and, and, you know, he's like, look, Jack, you got to get rid of this idiot. You know, he can't stop running in his mouth. He's not looking out for you, blah, 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 blah. So they get an offer from Melvin Belli. And Melvin Belli is an attorney from California who made a name for himself, I guess, in personal injury cases. They called him the king of torts, whatever the hell that means. Um, and, you know, he was, he was, he was, he was a voracious lawyer. You know, he went after, he won a couple big lawsuits against some major corporations like Coca-Cola and, um, some big builders down in Florida. But the Jack Ruby trial was his ultimate get. Okay. You know, this is where Bill, I was going to make a name for himself. And by all accounts, you know, he, he pretty much took it pro bono. Um, as some lawyers do these high profile cases so they can make a name for themselves. So in the future they can, they can get high profile. Um, uh, what do you call them? Clients, high, high profile clientele that pay a lot of money. Um, you know, and he has a lot of clout in the courtroom and he's respected by judges and this and that and the other. And so that's how it all works. So the Jack Ruby tribe was Melvin Belli. Uh, his shining moment. Now he would go, he would go on, um, you know, to involve himself in some other no notoriety. And he was a good lawyer. He made over $600 million for his clients in his, in his, uh, geez, 50, you know, 50 or 60 plus year career. Um, he was also notorious. And I think it was 1969. Uh, when the Zodiac killings were going on in San Francisco, the, the Zodiac Killer asked that either Melvin Belli or F. Lee Bailey show up on this morning talk show and that he would call in. And so they arranged this whole deal. And, and, and you know, the, uh, the Zodiac Killer did call in and talk to Belli 54 times <laughs> within a span of two hours. He was just playing games, you know. But this drew Belli into, you know, the spotlight once again. Uh, the Zodiac Killer actually wrote Belli a letter with some clues in it. Um, and then, you know, this kind of catapulted Belli into like the notorious status where he, you know, would get these, you know, awesome clients. And his, his uh, firm eventually went bankrupt in 1995. Um, he was suing Dow Corning for breast implants that, um, it was like a class action lawsuit that a bunch of women had filed. And while Dow Corning declared bankruptcy and couldn't pay their judgment. And Bill, I had paid out five, $5 million in, uh, you know, expert testimony, 
and and all these other legal bills and everything that he couldn't he couldn't get back and his firm had to file for bankruptcy and he died in 1996 you know one year later but back to you know the Jack Ruby trial um i think it was sometime in january of course after ruby's arrested bell eyes his attorney he teams up with a trying to find who it was um, let's see. Larry Schiller. Okay, there was somebody named Woodfield who worked for <clears throat> it was either the Dallas Morning News or the Dallas Times Herald, and he, they wrote this. Uh, I guess it was a three-part, like, mini-novella entitled My Story. You know, he teamed up with Jack Ruby. And uh, they sold this thing, you know, this three-part thing, My Story, for about $45,000 to various uh, media outlets and magazines throughout the world. Uh, Ruby share of these sales were some $30,000 and out of his $30,000 he had to pay or he, he didn't have to, I guess $11,000 was paid to Melvin Belli. He gave Tom Howard, uh, his first attorney, $4,000. Charles Bellows, a lawyer from Chicago got $2,500 for his help and advice after the trial. Associate counsel Phil Burleson got $1,000. The investigator on the case was paid $5,000. Doctors collected $5,000 in expert witness fees. And the rest was expended for miscellaneous defense purposes. Uh, one of his other attorneys, Joe Tonahill, a wealthy man, declined compensation until all other demands on the defense treasury were met. Um, so less than two weeks after the publication of this My Story thing, uh, you know, the trial is about ready to start and it was not published anywhere in Dallas because they thought that it might interfere with, you know, the trial and, and him getting a fair trial. Not that he was going to get a fair, fair trial anywhere in the world, let alone Dallas, let alone some other bum F town in da in Texas. Um, you know, just about everybody saw Jack Ruby kill this guy or heard about it, you know, and it's kind of hard not to have an opinion about it, but, I want to play you a clip from uh, one of the jurors uh, who actually sat, you know, on the jury for the Jack Ruby trial. And it's about two minutes long. And I'll be right back after this. Seeing, sitting there in the jury box, looking at Jack Ruby every day, did you feel like you were looking at an innocent, innocent man who got caught up in, under uh, intense circumstances? Or did you think he was guilty? No, I, I didn't think that he was guilty or innocent. I, I hadn't reached that point. Uh, I had no reason to believe really legally that he was either one. I was trying to keep my mind open for, for the evidence. But uh, I, I felt very sorry for Jack Ruby. He, he, uh, he looked uh, alone. He looked forlorn. Uh, he just really looked pitiful. He never said anything, never smiled. Uh, I made eye-to-eye -eye contact with him once or twice. It's all because he just, he was, he was in another world, seemed like, all the time. 
I know that one time uh, the district attorney, the assistant district attorney, <coughs> excuse me, who who worked with uh, Henry Wade, uh, he was uh, he and the uh, and the other team. They were very they were sharply critical of of Jack Ruby because uh, they would malign him. They had, uh, they would uh, 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 almost heckle him because uh, they called him the village idiot and all kinds of names uh, in court. And uh, this district attorney, I heard him say say something about uh, him that Jack Ruby was just sitting there. He said. Doesn't he remind you of, of looking into to the eyes of a crab? And I thought, that's an awful thing to, t to say. But then I looked at him and I thought, well, he does look like a crab. <laughs> you know, his eyes were, were, were sort of fixed uh, and uh, had, a, had a vacant stare, I guess you'd say. And he, and he looked like he was feeling his way through the world. And I really felt sorry for him. I just warned him to say something and apologize and and say, I'm sorry, and let's all go home, and I would have gone with it. But uh, it didn't work that way. Yeah, didn't work that way. And what this juror was referring to um, was, I guess, the uh, the courtroom strategy of Jack Ruby's lawyers in Melvin Belli uh, to make it appear that Jack Ruby was not of sound mind, meaning insane, um, or mentally ill or brain damaged or, or something else. They, I mean, they went so far as to say that, uh, he was born with an abnormally large head, which would have caused problems when he was born because it would have gotten squeezed in the birth canal and would have caused brain damage. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, saying that because he'd been pistol whipped so many times growing up, you know, he might've had brain damage from that. And he, you know, which might have not caused him to think clearly, you know, but look, Jack Ruby was a very business savvy kind of guy. He really wanted to be his own man, to do his own thing. Um, and he was very much in control of his faculties when it came to his business, uh, his dogs, his friends, his associates, um, you know, we talked about his trip to see Robert McCown uh, in 1959, I think it was, um, you know, to request a letter of introduction to Fidel Castro. You know, he was he was working on trying to <clears throat> send some Jeeps down there, um, brokered some kind of a deal there. He, he was helping Lewis McWilly, uh, you know, when he went to Havana. And when he came back, he kind of brokered uh, some shipments of guns from McWilly to, uh, I guess, Fidel Castro in Cuba. And, you know, when it, when it came to his business, you know, Jack Ruby was very hands-on. He was the guy that took the, you know, the copy down to the newspaper and, and made sure that every little detail was taken care of in the ads for the, you know, the newspaper. Um, he was in charge of, you know, booking the, entertainment for the club. He was in charge of bouncing. You know, he was his own bouncer. You know, if people acted up in his club, he was the one that, that got involved and, and would, would, would get in fights and throw people out or, you know, threaten them if he needed to with his gun. 
You know, he liked to feel like a big shot. He carried around thousands of dollars in his car and on his person, you know, and he said he always had his gun with him uh, for this very reason, you know, and, you know, he's dealing with beautiful women. Um, you know, nothing escaped Jack, no detail of business escaped Jack Ruby. So, you know, when they're trying to paint this guy as some kind of an insane person, it just doesn't work. You know, insane people can't, you know, start a business and run it as, as, as effectively as he was doing if they're insane. Um, you know, which, which left the prosecution to either prove that he's not insane or, you know, try to prove that he was put up to doing this. And of course, Jack Ruby did not want to admit that he was put up to doing this. Um, even on his deathbed, you know, he, uh, he claimed that, you know, he acted on his own. There was no conspiracy that, uh, you know, it was, he made the, the rash decision to, you know, shoot Oswald because he said, you know, this guy shot his president in, and it called him a dirty rat or something to that effect. When he shot him, he said, you shot my president, dirty rat. Well, there's only one shot, but <clears throat> you get the gist. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, but the courtroom was very much a circus environment. You know, <clears throat> his own lawyers were practically calling him retarded, um, calling him an idiot, you know, look at this poor sap, you know, he's had such a hard life, you know, he didn't have his parents around, he had, you know, he was sent to an orphanage, you know, he had to raise his brothers and sisters, you know, this, that, and the other, you know, just on and on. Yeah, so that was the defense for Jack Ruby. And, of course, <clears throat> it did not work. <laughs> As you heard at the beginning of the show, you know, the jury found Jack Ruby guilty of murder with malice at forethought and sentenced him to death. Sentenced him to die. Now, when Jack Ruby talked to the Warren Commission... He had already been sentenced to death. He was already on death row in Texas. And he was very adamant about wanting a polygraph examination or he wanted to be given true serum. He was very much skirting around a whole lot of stuff. You know, when he was talking to Earl Warren, um, when they came to see him, it was Earl Warren, I believe Joseph Ball, uh, Gerald Ford was there. Um, there was a Secret Service guy. Can't remember his name right off the top of my head. Uh, Bill Alexander was there. Joe Tonahill was there, um, acting as counsel, but he wasn't technically Jack Ruby's lawyer. Um, Sheriff Decker was there, and you know Sheriff Decker kept saying, "Look, you've been you've been wanting to tell me your story for all these years, or you know for the past couple of months, and I wouldn't let you." And he's like, you know, be a man and tell this man who came thousands of miles to talk to you, Jack, tell him your story. And Jack kept saying over and over that he wanted a lie detector. And they tried to explain to him that, look, we can't just give you a lie detector and let you tell your story. We have to know your story. And then we can ask you yes or no questions pertaining to your story that you can answer yes or no to and that we have something to compare it to. You know, Jack finally got the gist of it. 
you know, and he, and he tried to tell him that, you know, Earl Warren, that his life was in danger. He tried to tell him that his own life was in danger. He tried to tell Earl Warren that his family, his sisters, his brothers, that their lives were in danger. And he told him, look, there's an organization here, you know, the John Birch Society and General Edmund Walker. And that because of what he did, these people are now in power and they are very dangerous people. And, you know, he was worried that he wouldn't even make it back to the jail alive, you know, let alone when he got to jail. Because, you know, these people, the John Birch Society, they have people on the police force. They have people in jail. Um, they have a very wide reach. They have judges. They have lawyers. They, you know, the people that believed in the anti-communist movement and, you know, the anti-integration movement, they were all over the place in society. And you might not even know who, who they are. And Jack Ruby was very scared. He wanted Earl Warren to take him back to Washington so he could personally tell the president the truth. And they assured him, you know, look, when we get back, I will tell him, you know, and, uh, you know, just tell us your story and we'll, we will set it up. We will come back and we'll give you a lie detector test or a true serum or whatever it is. You know, so Jack Ruby finally relented and about a month later, True to his world word, Earl Warren came back to Dallas and his team set up a lie detector test for Jack Ruby to take. Um, and you know, Jack, there was a lot of problems with this lie detector test. There was a lot of, I mean, they told him the questions ahead of time, which is, I thought was weird and odd. Um, there was a lot of, you know, does that, is that cuff bothering you, Jack? Are you okay, Jack? We just want to make sure you're comfortable, Jack. Um, you know, this, that, and the other. And, uh, a lot, of, a lot of, you know, like treating him like he's a celebrity. Like, you know, I don't know. It just seemed weird to me. And a lot of experts who've, who've looked at this lie detector test don't really give it much weight. You know, the, the HSCA didn't give it much weight. You know, but that's what Jack Ruby wanted. So that's what they gave him. And I believe the results of it are published in the Warren Commission volumes. Um, so, you know, it appeared that he was telling the truth, but it's, it's, it's very hard. To, it's very hard to say, you know, there was some deception indicated on a couple of questions that, uh, that didn't really matter because there's a procedure you're supposed to go through when, when you give somebody a lie detector test, you're supposed to, you know, give questions that you know that they're going to be, that you know what the truth is. And then you're supposed to ask questions that have nothing at all to do with anything. And then you're supposed to ask, you know, questions that have to do with something that you don't know the answer to that you want to determine whether or not it is that they're lying in their body response. And of course, this is the 1960s. It's not, there's no computers involved. It's not really an exact science back then. So it's very hard to rely on these things. But it, what it appeared to me is that, is that Jack Ruby wanted an excuse to be able to tell um, the truth, you know, and he hinted at, at, at a conspiracy. He hinted at an organization that was pressuring him to do what he did. Um, you know, and his actions immediately after the assassination, you know, kind of lead you in that direction. You know, he's, he's at the police station, uh, for the Friday night press conference. 
Um, he's just mere feet away from Oswald in the hallway. He, you know, he has his gun on him then. Um, maybe he didn't get a clear shot then. Um, you know, maybe he didn't have the nerve yet. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's hard for me to believe that he wasn't overcome with grief that Friday night when he's mere feet away from Oswald and he might not get another chance to shoot him, but he doesn't take it. You know, he's not overcome with the, with the prospect that, that, you know, Jackie Kennedy might have to come back to Dallas for the trial of Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, the, the so-called excuse, um, that Jack Ruby gave, um, for doing what he did. Um, and Tom Howard, his first attorney actually admitted later on that he was the one who told Jack to use that excuse, um, because it would be most sympathetic to him and it would look the best, you know, as an excuse in court. They might have some mercy on him. He might, you know, they might think of him as a hero. He might get five years with most suspended or, or something to that effect. And, you know, best chance to get out of things. But, you know, it's, I just don't understand how the official story of Jack, you know, coming from Jack Ruby that, you know, it was just a matter of just the right place, just the right time. And, you know, he just took this opportunity. He was overcome with the feeling of, you know, I'm going to kill this guy. You know, he said it flashed in his mind how incompetent the uh, legal and judicial system is in Texas. And he wanted to make sure that this guy got what was coming to him. But he didn't on Friday night. He just kind of hung back and observed. And he even uh, corrected. Uh, was Bill Alexander or Henry? I think it was Henry Wade. He even corrected him, you know, about the fair play for Cuba committee. And he even got an interview, I believe it was for KLIF. He got, uh, it's either Wade or Alexander on the phone, um, for them. You know, he got these sandwiches made and he took them to the radio station and, you know, he was just flitting all over town, you know, and then he went back to the, to his club. He was talking to, you know, Harry Olsen for a couple hours and one of his dancers in the car and everybody was really upset and, you know, they were trying to figure out what they're going to do, you know, and then he goes in, uh, real early in the morning, like four thirty or five in the morning, grabs George Senator and Larry Crayford and goes out and takes pictures of, you know, impeach Earl Warren billboards and, you know, goes to the post office to find out who owns these PO boxes. That's on these flyers and on these billboards. And it's just, a big rigmarole, you know, it's, it's very hard to follow. I think he even goes to the synagogue at one point. He goes to dinner at one point. Um, he's all over the place. He's all over the phone. He's, he's talking to his sister. Um, you know, just a whole lot of stuff, you know, and then all of a sudden that Sunday at the last possible moment that the public is, is at least until the trial that the public is going to be able to see and get close to, Lee Harvey Oswald, he takes his opportunity and pulls the trigger. Now, like I said, he, you know, he, he never, he didn't live long enough to actually get his second trial. Uh, it was granted to him, uh, a retrial in a different city in Texas. Uh, I believe it was in 1967. It was granted, um, 
and he did get a speedy trial uh, when it came to killing Oswald. You know, of course, it happened November 24th, 1963, and he was sentenced to death in March of 64. So within four months, he was arrested, had his trial, <laughs> and convicted and sentenced in less than four months after the crime. So, you know, and this was the crime of the century up to this point. You know, this was the most notorious crime, you know, even a televised murder, the first televised murder in America. And, you know, this was the OJ Simpson trial of the 1960s. You know, this was, this was it, you know, and it got a lot of Coke press coverage back then. Um, there's a lot of attention paid to it. Um, you know, and there's really only two possibilities when you get, get right down to it. Either Jack Ruby took it upon himself for whatever his personal reasons are to just kill another man that did nothing to him personally. You know, you have to remember this because to kill another man that did nothing to you personally, I mean, that's cold blooded murder. You know what I mean? Like that's cold blooded murder. And if you're not a psychopath or a serial killer, it's just a very strange murder to, to kill someone else that did nothing to you personally. You know, I could understand if Oswald killed his sister, you know, and he was determined to get his revenge that way. But Oswald didn't do anything to Jack Ruby personally. This is why the whole thing doesn't make sense. This is why people believe that there was a conspiracy. And so you got to figure either, you know, this reason that doesn't really make sense or there was a conspiracy and Jack Ruby was put up to kill the Oswald. He was threatened to kill the Oswald, you know, and he pretty much told her a warning, look, you know, they're threatening the lives of my sisters, my brothers, you know, to do what I did, you know, I'm as good as dead. If I tell you the truth, they're as good as dead. If I tell you the truth, I mean, <laughs> It doesn't really get more plain than that. And, you know, the lone nutters don't want to hear this. You know, they just don't know what to do with it. Um, and, you know, neither do a lot of other people. And I was listening to a weird show today that I stumbled across. Um, and they were talking about the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. And this is one of those podcast that uh, is very like uppity debunker skeptic-y uh, douchey uh, psychological type thing you know where they try to analyze these logical fallacies and, and these different uh, aspects of, of, of logical fallacies and there was one they were talking about today called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy where you know looking at a very broad case, such as the Kennedy case, um, that we only are drawn to things that support what we already believe. And, and the illustration that they used was, okay, this Texas guy, he goes out on his farm. He's at, he's there at his barn and he has his rifle and he starts shooting at the barn. <clears throat> So he, he goes over after he's done shooting and he looks 
at the barn side of the barn, you know, where he was, where he was hitting it. And he looks for the best cluster and the best shots. And then he draws a bullseye around that. And, you know, that's what their, their allegory was to, um, how conspiracy theorists look at a case. And, you know, I don't really agree with that, to be honest with you. I mean, I can see where it happens most definitely, but you know, their, their, their example was of course the whole Kennedy Lincoln thing, you know, where, well, Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln and Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy. And Kennedy was killed in a Lincoln, which was made by Ford. And Lincoln was killed in a theater, uh, you know, of the Ford Theater. And, and you know, their killers both had 15 letters in their name. And they were both born on a Friday. You know, they were both succeeded by people named Johnson. You know, yeah, it's a lot of coincidences between the Lincoln and the Kennedy assassination. Sure. You know, but I don't know exactly what they're trying to prove by, you know, giving this as an, as an example of some kind of a, you know, conspiracy myth. Uh, you know, I don't really understand it because, you know, a lot of these things are true about Kennedy and Lincoln. You know, is it just a coincidence? Yes, it's of course, it's just a coincidence. You know, there's no there's no master, you know, conspiratorial puppet master pulling the strings and, and, and you know putting all these people in place and making all these things happen just like this and that, and, you know, of course not. It's a coincidence, you know, it's a, it's an eerie one, <laughs> you know, when you think about all, all the stuff, but a coincidence nonetheless. So yeah, the podcast was called you are not so smart and I'll put a link up to the specific episode I'm talking about. If you'd like to learn more about the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, and how they apply it to conspiracy theories. It's kind of kind of interesting in a way. But, you know, listening to it, I kind of get irritated because it's just a bunch of um, uppity, uppity, douchey people who think they're just so smart. And, uh, you know, think that they have, you know, everybody's figured out and why they reason this and why they believe that. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's almost like listening to Fetzer reason things, you know, it's just... You know, but I can see their point on some things, you know, like if we believe Lyndon Johnson is the mastermind of the assassination, then we are just going to point to the evidence that supports our theory and ignore all the rest. It does not, you know, I understand that, you know, but if, if I can draw a very good speculative argument based on facts, based on reason, based on logic, based on testimony, of a scenario that could have possibly happened and was a conspiracy, then I think that trumps their little fallacy, you know, but that's just me. It was kind of interesting to check out. So check it out. I'll put a link up over the website, tlgpodcast.com. If you want to check out that show. Um, one more thing before we go, I wanted to share a story and this comes from the book, The Trial of Jack Ruby by John Kaplan and John Waltz. And it's very interesting. Uh, you know, I, I had never read it before or heard about it before. Um, and let me try to find it here. Okay. Now, apparently 
Jack Ruby was not the only person to murder somebody. Upon hearing that John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. Shortly after Jack Ruby shot and killed Lee Oswald in the basement of the Dallas Police and Courts Building, another act of violence occurred in Sioux City, Iowa. There, on the afternoon of Sunday, November 24, 1963, Vashia Michael Bohan, a 47-year-old dental technician, and his mother were seated in their living room of their home watching a television program about the funeral arrangements for President Kennedy. Suddenly, Bohan's 68-year-old stepfather entered the room and loudly cursed the assassinated president. Overcome with emotion, Bohan rose, picked up a pair of sewing scissors, and stabbed his stepfather six times, once in the mouth and five times in the chest. The older man fell to the floor dead at 2.52 p.m., one hour and 32 minutes after the shooting of Oswald. Bohan calmly telephoned the Sioux City Police Department to report his crime. Two police officers, uh, two police officers arrived shortly thereafter, and he surrendered without resistance. On Monday, November 25, 1963, one day later, Bohan, like Ruby, was arraigned on a charge of murder. He pleaded not guilty and demanded a preliminary hearing. Bail was set at $10,000, and it was promptly posted, and Bohan was released from custody. Now, in December, Bohan changed his plea to guilty. On the day before Christmas, he appeared in the courtroom of District Judge George M. Paradise for sentencing. The judge had pondered the accused's crime and the atmosphere in which it had taken place. Referring to the assassination of President Kennedy, Judge Paradise stated that the entire nation was under stress and strained from the tragedy. He continued, but that is not a reason for a citizen of the nation to release his emotions to the extent of causing another tragedy. The defendant's deed, he concluded, would weigh forever on his conscience. He then sentenced Bohan to eight years in prison and a $1,000 fine. The judge then suspended the entire eight-year prison sentence and ended the hearing by wishing the defendant a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Bohan paid his fine and went home. And Jack Ruby, of course, that story ended in a very different and tragic way. That's it for this week, people. I hope you enjoy the show. Show me some love on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure you're sharing stuff, liking stuff. I see you in India listening. Saudi Arabia, what is up? I see you in Louisiana, Florida, California, all over the world, baby. This some bitch is up to the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace. Benjamin Banger, freemusicarchive.org.
you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 US only.